0: Could an unsolved 62-year-old murder case stop special counsel Robert Mueller from publishing his much-anticipated report of his findings in the Russia investigation? Joining me to answer that question is Brad Moss, a partner at So, Brad, this case is now getting attention because the D.C. Federal Court of Appeals is going to be ruling on the request of attorney and author Stuart McKeever to release secret testimony given to a grand jury that investigated the disappearance of a Columbia University professor back in 1956. Tell us a little more about this.
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting case in terms of something that had no intention probably of ever implicating anything out of the historical context of the circumstances of this one professor's death many decades ago. But it obviously has some potential policy implications for what's going on right now with the Russia probe because it ultimately revolves around the ability of the judiciary to authorize the release of information that is otherwise considered secret. It's grand jury information. And the problem here for the Mueller team is, in the past, when he had something like the Independent Counsel Statute, there was a statutory basis for uh, the Independent Counsel to release and, or to incorporate grand jury information into a report. That's why you saw it in the Ken Starr Report back in the 90s with Bill Clinton. But that statute lapsed, and so there's no statutory exception or loophole here. And so we're relying now on different interpretations of existing DOJ regulations. And no one quite knows for sure how Mueller's team would view their authority and how DOJ uh, leadership, particularly the Deputy Attorney General, would view the proper policy here um, in the absence of a ruling by the circuit uh, in this ongoing case to decide to what extent Mr. Mueller could Bring in various grand jury information in whatever report he writes about the president's involvement in collusion or obstruction.
0: Would this D.C. Circuit opinion necessarily rule in the uh, in the Mueller case?
1: No. So this, so it's it's. I mean, it might get mentioned in a periphery, but the uh, this D.C. Circuit panel is only addressing the context of the specific case before it, which is trying to get the uh, court to authorize the release of this various grand jury. Testimony from decades ago when the case was presented to the grand jury, but ultimately no prosecution was pursued. Uh, and so the DOJ position in that case, uh, because uh, in any case in the kind of situation the Justice Department represents the U.S. government, DOJ is taking the position that the, the judiciary doesn't have the authority, absent specific statutory authorization from Congress, to authorize that release. And we don't know how the the three-court panel will rule. If this panel rules that the courts don't have that kind of authority, absent uh, congressional statute, it undermines some parts of what Mueller's team would otherwise want to put into a report.
0: Now, if Democrats win control of the House in November, is there a problem solved, essentially, because they can, in, in any kind of subpoena, they can request this if they're having impeachment hearings?
1: Correct. And this is a, yeah. This is only a problem in the context of uh, there not being a congressional impetus. So if the Democrats take the House and/or the Senate, and they choose to run various investigations or issue subpoenas that they've been dying to do this whole time, but they've been facing um, some pushback from the Republicans, then yeah, they can do that, and they are then filling in that gap that otherwise was is required that congressional authorization. But if they fail, if the Republicans hold the House and the Senate, you don't know how this will play out. You don't know how Mr. Mueller would view, you know, any particular ruling. If the if the D.C. Circuit comes down in favor of the Justice Department's view that the judiciary, the judiciary doesn't have this inherent authority, will he have to curtail or restrict? the comprehensive nature of his report. Will Mr. Rosenstein determine that there are aspects of the report that can never be sent to Congress? No one truly knows how this would play out in reality. It's certainly not something we were expecting, but it's going to be an interesting case to see how the circuit panel uh, considers it and rules ultimately.
0: So, Brad, turning to other aspects of the Mueller probe, uh, turning to Paul Manafort's next case. The judge has put it off for a little while, or at least has put off the presentation of the defense case in order to give them more time, although jury selection will begin. The Wall Street Journal reported that last week, as the Virginia jury was deliberating, that the defense, Mueller, Manafort's, getting my straight uh, mixed up, Manafort's defense team was talking to Mueller's prosecutors about a possible plea deal which did not work out. What does that indicate to you, if anything?
1: Well, look, it could be a number of things. One most obvious is this is very expensive to run this high profile uh, and very lawyer-laden defense that Mr. Manafort is running. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. He already just went through that. With one trial, and he's got to deal now with the second one, he has financial problems of his own, as we heard all about during the trial in the Eastern District of Virginia, and he has to wonder how much longer he can afford this since he's already been convicted on eight counts and is most likely going to jail for the rest of his natural life. So there certainly is a a reason, an incentive for him to try to minimize the financial burden that's going to be imposed on his family when this is all done. He's got to see if there's any kind of deal he can make in the end to try to save his skin and possibly still see the outside world while he's still alive. Now, what was the problem? What was the reason the negotiations broke down? The Wall Street Journal didn't quite say. My assumption, it's pure speculation, of course, is that it had to deal with the extent to which Muller the extent to which Manafort was willing to cooperate, was willing to provide relevant and material information to the Mueller team on the issue of collusion. And it could be that Manafort doesn't have anything, or it could be that Manafort didn't want to strike that kind of deal, in which case Mueller's team said, then forget it. We'll just go to trial. We've already got you nailed.
0: (laughs) I I tell you, uh, I I wish we had more time because I I also wanted to ask you about the other implications of this. And it seemed like uh, Mueller seems to be just rejecting a lot of information that is coming his way. Perhaps he has enough. Who knows? Thanks so much, Brad. That's Brad Moss, a partner at Mark say. On Monday, a federal judge in Seattle extended a ban on publishing blueprints for untraceable 3D-printed guns online. Another victory for gun control groups and 19 states trying to stop the plans from being made public. After the ban first went into effect last month, Washington Attorney General Robert Ferguson celebrated the decision and explained the suit.
1: The idea here is to limit the harm, and by placing this temporary, restoring, temporary restraining order in place, that will make a dramatic difference for public safety. I think it would be ludicrous for anyone to suggest somehow that it does not make a safe.
0: Joining us is Barry McDonald, professor at Pepperdine University Law School. Barry, the Trump administration reversed the position of the Obama administration. Why is the federal government fighting in court to allow the distribution of 3D printed gun files?
2: Well, I think they're sort of back on their heels. They're not so much fighting to allow it to happen, but they're justifying a settlement agreement that they entered into with this defense distributed company to allow them to do that. And, you know, they put uh, forth a couple of different rationales for that. Uh, Originally in a memo by the State Department, they said that we don't think the First Amendment would allow us to keep them from – making these uh, digital blueprints or these software files available on the internet. And then in court, they're really justifying it on the grounds that, look, we did a a long study and we've concluded that uh, allowing these uh, blueprints to be distributed won't threaten our national security interests.
0: So tell us, the judge issued a strongly worded decision. Tell us what he said.
2: Well, the judge basically said that um, the Trump administration didn't follow uh, proper procedures when uh, it removed uh, this particular item from the export restrictions. So the law at issue here is, is, a, is a ban on uh, making available information to foreigners that might uh, you know, allow them to create weapons and munitions that could be used against the United States. And so the judge said that uh, when the Trump administration agreed to remove uh, these particular items from the sort of c- category it might have felt fallen into on the export list, that they didn't, you know, properly give Congress 30 days prior to day notice of doing that. Uh, and they didn't notify the Defense Department. So it, it's really just you know, you, you didn't do it the right way, go back and, you know, restart the 30-day clock, do it the right way, and then and then we'll see. Then we'll litigate the case, perhaps on other grounds.
0: So it's a procedural victory then. what? W- let's talk about the underlying case. Is the First Amendment claim of Cody Wilson, who's the owner of Defense Distributed, who wants to post the plans online, is that First Amendment claim solid or is that questionable?
2: I think it's very solid. Um, and it's solid because of rules the Supreme Court has developed over time uh, to create very broad protections for free speech. So the first question is you know are computer software files or computer programs are are they speech? And I and you know some argue they aren't. Some argue this is just conduct, but I I think those arguments are weak. I mean you know, computer programs consist of source code, object code, you know, human written language, as well as sort of mathematical formulas that are designed to be, uh, instruct uh, computer hardware as, as well as computer users uh, what to do. So uh, I think it's very difficult to make the argument that, you know, even digital, uh, you know, ones and zeros that make up bits and bytes aren't speech because then you'd have to say, well, you know, music notation that is designed to be a symbol to communicate how to play an instrument uh, isn't human expression protected by the First Amendment. Or that, for example, a mathematical formula like E equals MC squared uh, isn't uh, human expression protected by the First Amendment. So I just think it's very difficult to make the argument that, you know, these computer programs aren't speech. And then once you, um, you know, determine that they're speech, now, the Supreme Court has uh, said uh, two things. One, if you try to restrain the publication of speech before it happens, uh, then the government is going to uh, face a very severe burden in terms of preventing that dissemination. Think of the uh, Pentagon Papers case that was recently uh, displayed in The Post movie, uh, where you know the Supreme Court basically said the government could not restrain the publication of you know, top secret information about the Vietnam War because the government hadn't demonstrated uh, a severe enough national security threat, and so you have that rule that kicks in here, where the government would have to, you know, demonstrate a severe national security threat or other harm.
0: Well, and would, then the other would the rule government that kicks in, before we go to the other rule? Would the government be able to prove harm? Would the states be able to prove harm in this case, where you likely could have access to guns from? You know, to terrorists and all kinds of other people.
2: Well, of course, the states are arguing, and I think, understandably so, they're very concerned that you know this could put untraceable and undetectable plastic guns uh, in the hands of uh, a lot more users. Uh, you know, and given the mass shootings that occur regularly throughout the United States these days, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't doubt their sincerity. Um, the question, is, the question is, though, what is the best way to go about addressing the harm? Is it to, is it to prevent the speech? And this is sort of in what we call instructional speech. Is it for the government to be able to ban or censor instructional speech? Or is it to go after the underlying conduct and, you know, uh, enforce the laws more aggressively? Because there are laws on the books about uh, having uh, untraceable weapons. Uh, and New York is proposing, in light of this whole controversy, New York is proposing legislation that would make people that want to print these sort of guns be licensed and register them. Uh, so the only question is, is you know, is that going to be, an, are they going to have enough of an enforcement effort to mitigate the potential harm? But in past cases, the Supreme Court has pretty much always come down on the side of, well, Go after the bad conduct, regulate the bad conduct, don't go after the speech. That's what's protected by the First Amendment. And and another good example of that is, uh, you know, there was an older case where uh, a magazine wanted to publish uh, how to make a nuclear bomb. (laughs) <laughs> the instructions for making a nuclear um, bomb and the, uh, Barry, we, the we only
0: system. have a we only have a, a minute here left and, and i want to just read this headline to you that's crossing the bloomberg the sure. owner of the company that makes those untraceable 3d printed guns said he's begun selling the plans online despite the court order in 45 seconds can you tell me what might be next in light of this
2: well so th- he was always claiming that he had uh, legally posted certain files on the internet before this order. So I'm not sure if he's talking about that or if he's actually talking about defying the court order now that it's in place. If he's defying the court order, you know, of course, the court can hold him in contempt. And then his, his defense would be, no, you can't do that because, you know, I have a First Amendment right to do that. We so have to
0: leave it there. Uh, more about this uh, in the coming days. That's Barry McDonald, professor at Pepperdine University Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.